Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BX137, Masculinity, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 247, August the 5th, 1991. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss the subject of masculinity. Now, the subject is a very important one because there have been dramatic shifts in this century in the character and outlook of the male sex. First of all, to begin with uh, an historical background, with the Enlightenment, some very far-reaching changes came into the Western world. Prior to that time, there were no legal discriminations against women such as began to prevail after about 1660. But you had a strange circumstance whereby women were at one and the same time legally uh, robbed of their rights, including the right to their own property, which fell into the hands of the husband, and at the same time began to be treated as less intelligent. Intelligent. The Enlightenment had decided that uh, reason was the supreme factor in all things, and that men represented reason, whereas women represented emotions. Well, this is nonsense. The studies of uh, Dr. Stephen Goldberg have indicated that Men excel at uh, abstract reasoning, but women far surpass men at practical reasoning. At any rate, it was, you might say, the men's liberation movement that came into being after 1660, headed up by Charles II and his corrupt court including a number of uh, degenerates, homosexuals, and the like. After about two centuries of that, the feminist movement arose. And in this century, especially since World War II, has become very powerful. At the same time, men have lost a great deal of the attributes of masculinity. And in its place, the macho bit has come in, which is pseudo-masculinity. Now, one of the things that... Uh, 
marked men in the early years of this century and in the last century, particularly in this country, was the pioneering spirit. So that I do believe the United States had a unique history in this respect. It's been fashionable in recent years to downplay the pioneering spirit. But anyone with a background in farming knows that farming is not easy and ranching is not easy. Now imagine the problem if you begin farming by clearing the land. The idea that virgin soil was somehow superior is except in rare areas, nonsense. Soil is built up by careful husbandry. And the work of the American male from the early years until World War One and even two, in many of the areas of this country was very hard work. It fostered masculinity. A man had to work hard. He had to subdue the earth in a very uh, strong and physical sense. And we must remember that during most of our history we have been a predominantly rural people. It has been in my lifetime that the shift has taken place and Americans have become urban rather than small town and country. Now, this has changed the image of men quite a bit. At the same time, you've had the rise of feminism, which has further been a shock, as it were, to the uh, historical scene and to the image of the man. As a result, some feel that today one of the problems of our time is that men no longer know what masculinity is, what it means to be a man. Now, I'm going to stop here and let Otto make a general statement, and then uh, I'm going to go into some of the biblical aspects of this. Otto. Well, <clears throat> we're living in a period when men are distinctly unfashionable, as you know. Yes. <clears throat> in fact, you might say they're, they have in, they're in bad standing right now. Uh, there are interludes, of course, where temporarily their, their reputation improves. In the case of the recent Gulf War, there was a, the whole business of Schwarzkopf, and uh, the treatment of the troops and so forth was the best that has been since World War II. Now, we won't go into the reasons, but mm -hmm. it was a, an interlude yes. in which temporarily, because in emergencies, men are uh, very desirable. They have their uses. <laughs> the, but the r relationship or, or what constitutes manhood varies from culture to culture, but there are certain uh, very definite 
overlaps between all cultures because after all we're dealing here with a gender with half the human race and the characteristics of men have been recorded throughout the centuries and I doubt if fashion or reputation or magazines or lectures or anything else is going to change the fundamental nature of either gender. Uh, What happens though is that cultural forces do shape what is acceptable behavior in men and what is not acceptable. Now, the Latin culture, which my father was raised in, uh, was is very clear, and there's a great deal of satisfaction in that clarity. There was men and women and children, and uh, when I repeat the Latin idea, doesn't don't, doesn't mean that I agree with it, but their idea is that the woman is between the man and the child. And uh, in practice, I notice with interest, it doesn't seem to work out that way. The Latin women are very dominant and very influential and very strong and highly respected. So it's really a partnership as it always has been throughout the centuries. But theoretically, in the abstract, it's men, women, the woman between the child and the man. And certain things are not manly faggotry being one of them, and I don't care whether the word is considered a bad word or not, uh, I'm used to using it. I can uh, think of I worse. Can, I can think of worse <laughs> and more descriptive ones. Yes. At any rate, I recall that my father introduced me to uh, one man in Caracas some years back. We're talking now, what, 30 years ago. And he told me later that that particular man had killed his brother and because he found out that he was a faggot and called the police and the police came and he gave them the gun and said I shot him because he dishonored the family and told them why and they didn't arrest him now I'm not sure that that's the same case today but at least that was the rule now as you know there's an old historical theory to the effect that when faggotry is countenanced by a culture when it is accepted and even more than accepted when it becomes fashionable that that is a sign of deep societal illness we're in that position and as part of the process of being in that position because puts us back into the pagan era very definitely we have returned to the pagan attitude towards sex and toward male behavior. The Romans, of course, made a distinction between the passive and the active. A Roman citizen who took a passive role in a homosexual relationship, even in the worst days of the empire, was stripped and punished. We've gone beyond that. We now say consenting adults are okay. So... In the process of moving into this position, which has been done with, within one generation, because, as you know, in, by 1945, homosexuality was illegal in every state and forbidden in all polite society and so forth, although it existed. It, didn't, it wasn't out of the closet. From 1945 until now, a, year, a generation and a half, it's not only out of the closet, but it's now demanding special privileges. 
And in the course of this transition, the profile, the masculine profile, has become almost invisible. I doubt very much if the average father today is able to explain to his children, to his sons, what is manly and what is not. And my father had absolutely no doubt of what was manly, what was not, and managed to convey most of it to me with hardly a word, mainly by example. There were certain things which you couldn't allow other people to do or to say to you, or you would betray yourself. You would not be a proper individual. And the essence was not bullying. It wasn't macho, as you said before. I mean, he used to say, don't pull out a gun in the living room. I mean, there's no need to have an argument or to prove how tough you are when there's no issue involved. But very definitely there are the qualities of courage, the qualities of honesty, qualities of character, which no proper man forgets. Mm -hmm. And yet, I doubt very much if you took a group of young people in the United States today and brought this subject up, they would be able to give you any sort of listing of what masculine characteristics are. It is interesting that uh, what we have today in modern education brings about a confusion of uh, gender. They educate both boys and girls as though there were no difference between the two. Same rules for both. Yes, and as though it were invidious to mention the fact of sexual differences. Now, that sort of thing warps boys and girls from their earliest years. They're not taught to be respectful. The old attitude did not uh, demean women rather it treated them with respect and every boy was taught that it was his duty to be protective of girls oh definitely I mean the language around girls was different as it would be around your mother or your sister you didn't treat them the same because they weren't the same I mean uh, girls could say things to you that would get a boy a bloody nose very quickly but now I understand they talk to each other in uninhibited terms. Yes. I couldn't describe to you what the conversations I have heard between men and women and girls and boys. One of the things that, uh, to get back to the Enlightenment that they did in saying men represented reason and women emotion, uh, was to uh, turn away from the education of women, uh, to treat them as incapable of uh, learning uh, on the same level, and also uh, to pamper them. The pampering of women began with their legal deprivation. Women as pets? 
yes. And they were told they were more sensitive, which is something I thoroughly doubt. <laughs> Women are not more sensitive than men. That's, uh, I think, a myth. In fact, in some respects, women have uh, greater toughness. I'm not talking about the physical sense, but in their ability to take things. Well, blood doesn't surprise them. No. And uh, uh, some women have said uh, their husbands cringe with horror at uh, any kind of uh, close examination by a doctor, such as for prostate problems. Whereas women go to a gynecologist and uh, submit to far more. Uh, there is a toughness about women when it comes to dealing with uh, the difficulties of life, wiping diapers. I've done a great deal of that in my time. But uh, women uh, can take things in that stride much more easily than men can. Well, the, it is true, I think, that men uh, tend to the abstract. They can be caught by words mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure it was William James and his definition of the tender-minded and the tough-minded yes. in which he said men can be caught by words and therefore can be tricked mm -hmm. into stupid positions but a woman will try to visualize the effect of those words in a human situation yes now, of course, this is only in general abstract reasoning. In actual life, men fool women and women fool men because the other sex is always somewhat mysterious to us. We cannot anticipate their reactions. But I've thought for a long time, and I haven't read this anywhere, that uh, you could gauge masculinity by the attitudes toward femininity. And I've gone into that before, where the homosexual competes with a woman, and a weak man will abuse a woman. And uh, genuine men will respect women, just as you respect your mother, you respect your wife, you respect uh, the other sex. And when it comes to the whole business of respect, to take advantage of women is an unmasculine sort of thing to do because you cannot use your full strength against a woman physically and one shouldn't do it intellectually either because that is an abandonment of the restrictions which every man has to put upon himself he has to learn to control his temper and he has to learn to control his speech he has to learn the essence of self-government, which is himself. And then, of course, he can steer a ship. And most of the relationships I've seen that have been 
happy and been satisfactory have been when the man, chart, man charts a course and steers a ship towards certain goals and his wife becomes his first mate. That works. Yes. And it seems to work better than any other kind of relationship. And that's biblical. You referred earlier to homosexuality and uh, its manifestation in uh, prominent form as the end of a culture. Uh, St. Paul, in the first chapter of Romans, uh, tells us precisely that. He describes homosexuality and uh, uh, says that these people are haters of all natural affections, enemies of mankind, and more. But the text there in the English versions is usually faulty because when we are told that they burned with lust one for another, the literal reading of the Greek is they burned out. They burned out. Yes. It portrays homosexuality as the burning out of man. Interesting. It's the end of man. It is his... Embers. Degradation. Yeah. Embers, yes. Right. He has, uh, yeah. in effect, destroyed himself, and he's burned out. Now... That is the biblical description of homosexuality. Well, that's very apt. That's yes. very apt. They go, you know, into successive stages of degradation. They move from the sexual into the sadistic. Mm -hmm. That's where the whip and the leather crowd comes in. Yes. And then they move into serial killings, yes. torture and murder. That's the end of the road. These are very dangerous people. And to have this entire country sentimentalized over them is to mislead the people and to lead them in the proper sense into temptation. The whole business here is, as far as I think, on ter in terms of masculinity, is that a man has to be master of himself. I think I talked once before about U. Walpole's book Fortitude, in which the protagonist, it was a book that Somerset Maugham stole from. He used part of it as the of human bondage. Mm -hmm. The protagonist in this particular novel was afraid of his father, and his father apparently had sadistic tendencies, and the boy imitated those and, and got some satisfaction out of hurting his fellow schoolmates in rugby, which is a rough game. Then his father began to weaken, and he observed this, and he finally realized that his father was not a strong man but a weak man, and that by imitating his father, he was imitating his father's weakness, and that sadism is a weakness. Well, sadism is a masculine trap. It's very easy for a man to fall into it, because if you're physically fit, and you're active, and you have a quick temper, there's nothing better than to beat up the other guy. And you have to learn that you can't beat up the other guy, even if you don't like him or he says things that you don't agree with. I mean, it's one of the lessons of my early manhood. And with the idea that sadism is a weakness that has to be governed and controlled and not given into, 
there are all sorts of weaknesses which uh, comprise tests of character and masculinity is the ability to confront those weaknesses and to overcome them just the opposite of what we are now being told and I understand that young men today get married with the expectation that their wife is going to work and that uh, they even make property agreements some of these people hmm. and there have been a few years ago there were talks about drawing up a contract on how they will share the household duties you know a proper young man now has to wash the dishes and this and that well I mean you do if you want when my wife was ill I was a butler my wife isn't ill anymore so I stopped butling the uh, strange things are happening here in this society. People are being told how to be human beings, yeah. and they're being told how to be men and women or how to be hermaphrodites yeah. in a psychological sense. Well, when you have the prevalence of homosexuality, you have the burning out of a culture and you have, of course, the destruction of masculinity. And since God has ordained that men should be the head of households, and that they should bear the responsibilities of a culture, it means the death of a culture. We are increasingly seeing an advanced case of cultural decay. Today, to pick up a paper is a horrifying fact. I can recall, as you can also, I'm sure, Otto, how, for example, rape, a case occurring anywhere in the country was headline news from coast to coast when we were children. And now it's no longer news. There's so much of it occurring. It's a commonplace, routine thing. Well, the women are correct when they say rape is an act of hatred. Yes. It's a, uh, a deliberate act of humiliation. And it's interesting. I think we've gone over this once before on so-called Wild West, that there were no sex crimes during the no. days of the Wild West. None whatever. No. And uh, yet every one of our Western movies show rape as a central theme. Mm -hmm. These people are trashing our history, they're distorting our history, and in that way making what is contemporary seem normal mm -hmm. in, instead of a decline. Well, when uh, we were boys, there was crime in uh, a certain number of big cities, notably Chicago. But in most of the country, you still had the prevalence of an old-fashioned Christian culture. Even to 1950, you could walk the streets of New York at any time of the day or night in any part of the city, including the slums, and you were safe. Oh, yeah. People used to sleep on fire escapes. Mm -hmm. Escape the summer heat, poor people. Yes. Slip, except in Central Park. Mm -hmm. 
my grandparents used to put a note on the door saying, key under doormat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was routine. Thefts were rare in most places. That's true. The crime that was headlined was crime between criminals. Yes. It was the bootleg wars, mm -hmm. the gangs that were involved in the bootlegging business. That was what gave Chicago its terrible reputation. Mm -hmm. But today, the crime in Detroit and, and other places outrival anything we ever imagined could happen. Yes. Over 23,000 murders a year we have mm -hmm. right now. Well, that uh, is far more than in the Gulf War by oh, a country indeed. mile. Well, that brings up the question when we were boys. We used to have fistfights. Now, it was pretty hard to hurt the other guy seriously in a fistfight. Uh, black eye, bloody nose, and maybe a tooth got loosened or something. I don't think, I don't recall anything mm -hmm. worse. I got a terrible beating once. Both eyes were black. A fellow caught me with a Sunday punch and, and never let up. But we had fistfights and they were fair. Yes. If the other fellow fell, then we'd wait until he got up. And we waited until he hollered enough, and that was the end of it. And the onlookers saw to it that it was a fair fight. Today they have knives and guns. And we considered those, at least I did and my crowd, the earmarks of cowardice. By the mid-sixties, the old-fashioned fight that we knew as boys, two boys with a circle around them watching, right. yeah. fighting it out, and if anyone uh, of the two tried to be unfair, uh, he was stopped. He was stopped. He was stopped. Or if he were uh, going too far and beating up the other, it was stopped. Yes. But by the mid-60s, the shift began. You could no longer take on another boy by yourself because his friends would gang up on you, and it became dangerous. Now it's murder. Well, now that used to be confined to the slums and to other races. Well, in those days, even uh, black crime was exceptional. It occurred. But uh, no one then would have imagined the kind of crime that goes now on now in black uh, neighborhoods. No, because they had their own community. Mm -hmm. And they didn't think, consider it segregation. And their churches were stronger. They had their own churches, their own, uh, not just their own clergy, but their own physicians, their own yes. dentists, their own lawyers, their own pharmacists, mm -hmm. their own stores and shopkeepers mm -hmm. and so forth. And they had all the role models in the world. Whereas now, the black bourgeoisie who gets successful moves away from the black community and moves uh, all over, has a clientele which goes across the board, the black community lost a lot with desegregation. Yes. Well, uh, to shift now to the biblical view, we are told in the uh, Shorter Catechism that man made 
God made man in his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and with dominion. And we can only truly understand what man is if we look at that definition, God's. First of all, knowledge. Man has a duty to know, to understand, and to grow in knowledge. Uh, then, holiness. To be holy because God requires that he be holy. And then, righteousness or justice, to use a more modern word. Man was created to represent God's justice on earth and dominion, not domination, but dominion, to exercise dominion under God and to subdue the earth. Well, man has been busy trying to redefine himself. Uh, one uh, statist educator who is not a Christian said a few years ago that uh, and this was early in the 70s, he saw nothing good ahead. Because a very popular book of the time was being used in the schools extensively, uh, The Naked Ape. Oh, yes. <clears throat> and he said, if this is the role model we give to our students, we are in trouble because we strip them of all morality, of all meaning and purpose, and we tell them, do your own thing. Become the animal you have been taught that you are. And of course he was right. We have seen that fulfilled very clearly. Well, the, the rules of the game have been swept away and nothing remains but the game. Now, a game without rules turns into something pretty messy. Yes. And this is where we are. Everybody that came here in this country came as a part, you might say, of a culture in Europe and the cultures of Europe were not synonymous, but they were all Christian. Mm -hmm. And even Latin America has a Christian culture, which held it together throughout all the rest of its turbulent history. And as I say, the Latins and the Mediterranean people who came here have managed to hold together the family structure much longer and much more cohesively than have northern Europeans. You might almost say the Protestant culture has not done as well in holding the family together as the Catholic culture. And I think that's very interesting. It's something that is never mentioned in the sociology books that I've seen in the United States. The sociologists here attempt to describe society without religion, which of course means like describing algebra without the X. Mm -hmm. A society without a religion and a society with religion is the difference between night and day. And 
we are still aware of the fact that Italian families, for instance, and Latin families have very strong extended family situations. It's not necessarily true of those of English or Irish or German descent because the families have disintegrated to a very great extent. This was a very difficult country for the Irish in particular because the men came over in Ireland itself as a man's country. But the Irish that came over were uneducated and unskilled. And therefore, the men were at a disadvantage. Their wives had to go to work as maids and cooks and so forth. And they had the same sort of displacement of the male-female relationship that happened to the black families. And it took the Irish a long time to adjust the balance. Now you're no longer aware of an Irish community in the United States. They have integrated into the American community at large and their family relationships reflect the family uh, as a whole. The historian Osmond uh, wrote a book just a few years ago, When Fathers Ruled. Mm. And uh, the thesis was the tremendous revolution which the Protestant Reformation wrought. It created a strong family structure. According to Eugen Rosenstock-Husey, this was so powerful that uh, Catholicism imitated it and the cult of uh, Joseph, St. Joseph arose, the Holy Family, and Mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. The sad fact is that while that has survived uh, longer than any other in Latin America in particular, the stronger Protestant family structure has broken down. I think there's a revival underway. I think we are seeing now, and the Christian and homeschool movements are important aspects of this, uh, a remarkable rejuvenation of the family. I want to shift gears a little bit here to deal with the influence of Hegel. Hegel posited Uh, the continual and radical conflict of interests is basic to history. Prior to that, the basic thesis of Western civilization was the harmony of interests. Yes. But Hegel's position meant that the whole world was at war the sexes were at war. Men were at war with each other. Well, it was almost an anticipation of the Darwinian struggle for survival. Uh, well, Darwin's theory yes. is Darwinism is Hegelianism applied to biology. Yes. And he knew that. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the conduits for Hegelian thinking in the United States was, of course, Emerson. Yes. And so the idea of the war of the sexes was promoted here. And feminism was one uh, consequence of that. Well, you're anticipating our yes. next topic. I, 
I am. But uh, the devastation that Hegel's thesis wrought in family life throughout the Western world and now because of our universities throughout the world is incredible. Well, in a way, it was also a trickle-down philosophy. Yes. The aristocracy always lived differently. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, uh, one of the attributes of the aristocrat was that he was not bound by fashion or by rules. He could do what he chose. He couldn't lose his status by misbehavior. That was one of the... Uh, and it did, of course, produce great individuals and also terrible individuals uh, in its heyday. But when that philosophy moved down to the middle class, a la Hegel, and through the universities, it was devastating because the middle class is what held society together. Yes. Well... One of the followers of Hegel, who rebelled against him in superficial points, but basically uh, developed his ideas, was Nietzsche. And Nietzsche saw war as the basic function of man. His superman was the killer. Oh, sure, the transcendental hero. Yes, and Samuel Warner uh, described uh, Nietzsche's philosophy as the urge to mass destruction. And that philosophy, he said, has penetrated all of society the world over and has become a part of the uh, image men have of themselves, a suicidal one. Well, it's interesting. The only search that is always successful, without exception, is the search for trouble. Yes. Any man who looks for trouble will always find it. He is never disappointed. And these ideas were floating among the intelligentsia, as they call themselves, of the Russians by the 1850s. And a very strange thing, the uh, teenagers began this contemptuous attitude toward their parents with which we are so familiar today. Uh, The whole arguments against the family structure and against manhood and so forth were floating in the top levels of Russia in 1856 because I happen to be researching that year right now because it's the year that Wilson was born. And all these ideas traveled around the world, the United States being a distant colony of Europe and colonized not by aristocrats but by the middle class and by the working class, remained aloof from these currents longer than any other great power. We were catapulted into it with World War II. Yes. Well, it is interesting that uh, the style, the uh, speech, the sexual revolution, everything that marked the hippie movement, you found in Russian youth. Yes. Prior to World War One. Oh, yes. 
nihilism, yes. anarchism, yes. Uh, long hair and blue-tinted glasses. Yes. The works. The whole world. And look what happened to them. Yes. Now switch it over to the Weimar Republic. Yes. Defeated Germany after World War One, where they had homosexual and lesbian nightclubs and entertainments and the long hair and the avant-garde art, fractured images mm-hmm. of the human psyche. It means whatever you want it to mean. Yes. And look what happened to them. The interesting part about all this is that the results are seldom, if ever, added up. Mm-hmm. We have here professors of enormous learning who never add up the results of these experiments. Even today, with the Soviet Union starving, they're still telling us that we need more regulations and controls to protect the people from polluting the environment. Mm-hmm. Well, I recall a, one of the most important universities in the world, a professor, a friend of mine, now retired, who was regarded as one of the ornaments of that university, so that uh, he, he was, on a number of occasions, relied upon to represent them here and abroad. But when he took a stand against abortion, which was surprising considering that he had no trait of Christian orthodoxy, he told me he was ostracized. Ostracized. Well, He was finished. In the name of tolerance. Yes. In the name of freedom and liberty. Yes. Ostracized. Well, going back to the masculine thing, it was considered throughout the centuries the epitome of masculinity to stand up and to fight Mm -hmm. the Spanish army was the last army in Europe whose generals had to lead their troops into battle personally and that was in their last big collision which was the Spanish Civil War they were Mm -hmm. still doing that Uh, the uh, practice had been abandoned by other countries in World War I the generals lived in the chateaus in France far behind the front lines in in situations of great elegance. One of the downfalls, I think, of the masculine image was the terrorist, because the terrorist attacked the innocent and the undefended and the disarmed. He attacked at random innocent people who couldn't fight back because they didn't even know there was a fight going on. They didn't attack the soldiers. They didn't attack the army. They didn't attack the police. They attacked men and women and and innocent civilians in restaurants. I mean, a friend of mine was in Saigon during the Vietnamese War, a seaman in a restaurant that was bombed. He said it was a terrible business. He said there were cadavers, there were dead people all over the place. He came out with only light injuries because he he wasn't close to where the bomb landed, but he said it was... A devastating thing. Somebody just went by on a bicycle and threw the bomb into the restaurant. This was supposed a way to fight. This is the most cowardly possible thing. And yet our media 
promotes these people as heroes of the revolution, soldiers for the cause. You probably recall the book published about 1960 by Robert Lindner, Rebels Without a Cause. very much so. And I heard uh, very learned men say it was a caricature of reality because it was portraying monsters who did things for no reason at all, brutal and cruel things. He based it on the observations and discussions with actual individuals. Yes. And it was prophetic of what was already beginning and was soon to triumph the world over. No question. This was, this is of course the return of barbarism. Yes. The barbarians would consider this sort of thing a coup. The American Indians, for instance, are great bluffers. If they could scare you, that was a coup. Mm -hmm. And of course, if they couldn't, they'd go all out. And they would attack and kill men, women, and children, babies in arms, no matter. There were no rules. There used to be rules for Christians. Non-combatants were safe. It was only the soldiers that were in danger. Well, when the rules go, it means that masculinity has gone. Mm. That's now, exactly the point. Uh, Dorothy made a point to me, oh, many years ago when we were much younger. She said, men are foolish when they get into any kind of uh, trouble with a woman because... Uh, they believe in the Marquis of Queensbury rules. They're going to be, they fight fair, at least in those days they did. But a woman's weapons, she said, are the weapons of weakness. It depends upon the social situation. I remember when I was a boy being taught that the Roman women gave their sons a shield to go into war and said, come back with it or on it. And the rules applied to both sexes. Yes. But what I'm trying to say is that men now have become effeminate. And therefore their weapons are the weapons of weakness, not of strength. They don't fight fair anymore. Well, they tell lies. Mm-hmm. They tell lies. Yes. I, I've just gotten through listening to Crossfire and Michael Kinsley and Pat Buchanan serving as hosts, and Kinsley is beginning to irritate me almost beyond endurance because he has no manners. Mm-hmm. He interrupts the other fellow before the fellow finishes his sta- statement and then summarizes what the man tried to say uh, incorrectly mm-hmm. and accuses him of having said that. At any rate, it was degenerated this time into a shouting match, and there was an English Marxist named Christopher Hitchens who writes for The Nation, who was uh, interrupting uh, Ed Meese. He called Meese a liar, a thief, and contradicted everything that Meese tried to say. Now, if I had been a host on this particular show, if I had been in either Pat Buchanan's place or Kinsley's place, I would have said, look, dirty mouth, get off the show. We don't want somebody who cannot let the other man express his point of view. Mm-hmm. I would have immediately said, there's no, no point in talking to you. Yes. But we have so much forgotten the rules that any statement is allowed. 
Any kind of argument is allowed. Just like fishwives, not like men at all. If you go and speak at a university, which I will no longer do, the professor who is the chairman or the student body official who is the chairman of the meeting doesn't have the courage to tell unruly persons to shut up or to instruct somebody to put them out. Well, then you can't have a meeting. You cannot have a meeting. I was booed at Stanford Law School and uh, heckled after I spoke. They did let me finish my talk. And then the young men who had had me there, you know, the students, escorted me to the car, and they apologized for the behavior of their fellows. And I accepted the apology and drove away. And it wasn't until I had actually left the precincts of the school that it suddenly occurred to me that when I was a young man, anyone who had insulted guests of mine, I would have answered. I would have defended my guests. Yes. They didn't know enough to do that. Yes. Nobody told them that... It wasn't. It isn't simply a matter of being told. Most of the things that I knew by the time I grew up were never told to me in so many words. I saw it in operation. I saw how men behaved. I watched my father in dispute. And I remember that it was always conducted in a civil tone. Men like that are not men. Whether they're young or old, they demonstrate by their cowardice and unwillingness to stand up and put down an insulting person. Well, yes, Uh, you have to, you know, you draw the line in this world beyond which the world cannot cross. If you don't draw the line, the world will run you down. Well, when I was younger, the living in a rural and small-town setting. Men like that were called, but not with the more polite biblical word, eunuchs. Yes, well, spiritual eunuchs. Spiritual eunuchs. Really, because what we're really talking about is spiritual qualities. Uh, Leopold Termond gave me a book written by a friend of his, who was paralyzed, his legs were paralyzed, and he wrote on Being a Man, was the name of the book. He said, this is a, a friend of mine who wrote the book, and he said, you, you know, I'd like it if you would review it. And I reviewed it, and I read it, and I could see why he went to the gymnasium, and he built up his torso and his arms and whatnot, lifting weights and all that, And it was an honest book. It was an interesting book. It was honestly written, and I could see why the whole question of being a man to a man who is crippled would be a serious topic because, of course, he was at a disadvantage, and he wanted to overcome that disadvantage, and he'd spent more time thinking about it than most of us do. I mean, let's face it, most of us come into the world this way, and we take it for granted. But it didn't ring true because he didn't go into the spiritual area of manhood, which is really where the tests are. Mm-hmm. The tests are not physical. No. 
they are not and that's where our generation is gone astray the macho bit is nonsense and we have a generation of men who are really eunuchs well you have to be responsible for your children and your wife you have to be responsible to the community Mm-hmm. You have to, some situations are very difficult. You have to then fall back on what the law says mm-hmm. and operate within the law, within the rules of the yes. law. And beyond the rules of the law, there are the rules of civilization. Well, our time is almost over, Otto. I'll give you a minute to make a concluding statement in a moment. But I'd like to say that to me, the encouraging thing is that. The Christian school movement and the home school movement is beginning to produce a different type of man. The boys that are coming out of it and are now going through college so that we have a generation that has come through the Christian school movement. They are men in the true sense of the word. So there's a counter-revolution underway. Well, it's a good thing. I agree with you. And I must say also that to be a Christian in this country at this time is to meet a heavy test. Yes. Because this is an anti-Christian government and an anti-Christian civilization. Yes. Well, thank you all for listening and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.